0: I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles for our Bible study and head over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 as we continue our paragraph by paragraph study through the book of Acts. We're coming to Acts chapter 6 and we're going to be down in verse 8. Down towards verse 8. And As I was thinking through the message I got to thinking about something. I want to throw a couple pictures up. Tell me who they are. okay? See if you recognize these people. Who's this? You're not sure who it is? That's neither Barack nor Obama, but I can't say his name. It's neither the former president nor is it the Green Bay, used to be Green Bay quarterback. There's Barack Obama. This guy is his doppelganger. His look-alike. The guy on the, in the middle picture, that's Aaron Rodgers. The guy on the far right, his name is Frank somebody. Okay? He doesn't give out his name. You, you know this idea of doppelganger, somebody that looks like you and you can go on, you can find out different people, you can even find pictures of individuals that in history they kind of look like an individual like them and so you can have it and some of you might have a doppelganger somewhere, okay? The point is we should be really focusing on doppelganging Jesus Christ getting to look like him we're not talking physically. We're talking in the way we act, that the way we walk, the way that we talk. And so that's why I want to look at Acts chapter 6 and I want you to see an individual that was really a spitting image of Jesus Christ. His name is Stephen. He and Jesus had a lot in common. They had a lot of the similar experiences. And if you read the stories, and I'm not going to go through the Gospels, but let me just, you, based on your memory of Jesus Christ and what happened to him, and draw some similarities in what happened to him, they're both very zealous in serving God. We've already read about Stephen in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. He is one of those first few that were chosen to serve as deacons in the church. He was willing to serve those other individuals. And they were Popular at first. Look at verse eight. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. But then the religious establishment got upset with Jesus, they got upset with Stephen. We read, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, in the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And then that dispute, and all of a sudden, it's, it grew. And like what happened to Jesus in the last couple of days before he was put on the cross, he is debating, he is challenged by the pharisaical leaders, the Sadducee leaders. They come and they try to trick him. They give them the story of a man who had seven wives and then whose wife will, you know, who will they be married to in heaven? Or the woman had seven husbands. I forget which one way it went. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we rebel against him? And they're throwing these questions. Jesus successfully debated and diffused their attacks. Well, look at verse 10. What happened to Stephen? And when they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they have this similarity The crowds got stirred up against Jesus. Look what happens here. And it says in verse 11, They suborned, or they hired, men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Both of them, like Jesus, in the night that he was tried, and here Stephen, they're brought before the council. That is the Sanhedrin. That is the the high court of the Jews, And what happens is, at that court, both of them had people lie about them to discredit them. Look at verse 13 about Stephen. And they set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And so that thing happened to Jesus. And they, like Jesus... Stephen is accused of being anti-the law, anti-Judaism, anti-the temple. He is accused of being anti-Moses. Jesus had that same thing happen. In fact, Jesus was accused of wanting to attack and tear down the temple and say that in three days he would build it up. They said he meant to physically tear down the temple that they've been working on for 40-some years already. And Jesus didn't mean about that temple. What temple was Jesus referring to? his body. That if his body was crucified, he who had God, who was God, he would rise again. Well, Stephen gets accused of the same thing. He's found, he's accused of doing that according to the next verse. In verse 14, they accused him of destroying the place in the sense that he's preaching the same thing. And so Stephen is found guilty by the Sanhedrin. Jump all the way to the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is Stephen's response. And we come to it at the end of chapter 7. And when they heard, that is the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And it goes down, and it says, uh, verse 47, They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. They ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. And they stoned Stephen. And so you have this same experience that Stephen is found guilty, just like Jesus was found guilty in an illegal court of law. If you go back into Jewish culture, if you're not familiar with this, Jesus' trials were totally illegal. They weren't supposed to hold him in private residence. They held him in Ananias' uh, house or uh, Caiaphas' house. They weren't supposed to hold any trial at night. They held it in the middle of the night. And if they passed a capital punishment death sentence upon somebody, the Jews couldn't carry this out. They weren't supposed to. The Romans, they were, had to carry it out. So that's why the Jews went to Pilate and said, you've got to carry it out. And then as well, the Jewish law said this. The Jewish law said if you convict somebody of a capital punishment, you have to re-look at that 24 hours later. We have to call again the entire court into into session to determine, did we make the right judgment? So Jesus, they didn't do that. Stephen, they didn't call back into session 24 hours before they carried out the punishment. And they carried out the punishment without Rome's authority. Without their permission, so Stephen was killed through illegal trials, and both of them they suffer horrible deaths. You know how Jesus died. Well, here Stephen is being stoned to death, and then you have as well that at the end they both pray a very similar prayer. We read in the the sense uh, in sentence of chapter sixty. I'm sorry, in chapter seven, verse sixty. Stephen knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Jesus had said, Father, forgive them. They, okay, so they have the same response, and then they both end up, Jesus says, into the hand I commend my spirit, and if you read these verses, Stephen does the same thing. He says, Lord, I'm relying upon you at the very end. So they had similar life experiences, but what we want to focus on, because we can't repeat those things, we want to focus on what about attitude? What about action? What about words that were said? What about how you treat other people? Can we become like Christ in those areas? The answer is yes. Should we? The answer is yes. Does it take effort? The answer is yes. What areas in particular should we be praying about? Should we be going to the Lord and say help me to become more like you? Help me to act like Jesus when it comes to let me share several with you. Number one Stephen is very much like Jesus in that he has a servant's heart. Servant-hearted. You read in scriptures where Jesus told his disciples. When his disciples, there was a moment that they wanted to retaliate against some of the people who weren't treating him right. Jesus made this comment. Whosoever will be greatest among you shall be your minister. Whosoever of you will be first, he needs to be the servant of all. He went on, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, uh, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And then he concluded that by by himself going out and serving people in that very text. And Jesus did this repeatedly. He served others. He gave of himself. He ministered to people. He gave up some of his time. He gave up some of his evenings. He gave up some of his private time. He was focused on ministering to people. What about Stephen? Did Stephen get that same spirit? The answer is yes. We already mentioned this and said that in the early part of chapter 6, they said that they needed somebody, as we looked at last week, somebody to take care of the widows, who that the apostles couldn't keep up with caring for the widows. And then some were accusing them of showing favoritism towards the Hebrew widows versus the out-of-country widows, the Grecian or Hellenistic widows. And the apostle said, let's settle this. Let's get seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. You choose seven men from your midst. Let them be the ones that lead in this ministry of caring for the widows. Stephen was one of them. Stephen had a servant's heart that he was willing to take care of people that in general people the rest of society overlooked. If he were living today, he'd be the type of person that said, I will go visit in the rest home. I will go visit the widows. I will go and do some raking for them or doing something to assist them because he had that same servant's heart that said in his mind, it's not all about my schedule it's about how can I minister to other people. And so he was the one that was doing that. He also ministered, as we looked in chapter 5 and chapter 6 when we were there, he was able, as one of the few people that is mentioned in Scripture, able to do wonders and miracles, verse 8. That is, perform maybe the healings, perform whatever there was. And if you look back in the previous two chapters, they were doing this for needy people. They weren't making the rich richer. They weren't providing greater possessions for those who already had them. They were helping out people who were sickly, people who were in great need, using the miracles to minister not to magnify any one person, not to make life better for some person who wanted greater comfort, but rather to help out the needy, those who were overlooked. And, Phil, and Stephen in this text, he is one who's going about and ministering that way. Servant hearted. I think that goes along with servant heart, it has to be a spirit of humility. People don't serve others if they're a proud, arrogant individual. For one to say, I've been chosen by 20,000 people. I've been one of the seven chosen. That would be easy to all of a sudden become proud. Look at my position. I don't need to serve. I should be served. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he has that servant mentality, even though he gets a position of great prominence in the early church. He is an individual who has uh, humility by serving other people even though he has the ability to do miracles. We're going to see it in the next uh, two chapters. We're going to see an individual who sees miracles happening and he wants to profit from it. He wants to make money from it. Not Stephen. Stephen isn't about personal gain and personal profit. He's about ministering to others. That takes great humility. It takes humility to let others go first. It takes humility to take away from your time, your schedule, and say, I will invest it in helping out somebody who is lonely. Great humility. As well, you see his, his other-mindedness that he is interested in sharing the gospel with people. That's what it's all about when it says that Stephen did these wonders, and in verse 9, he's disputing with those who are in the synagogues. He's gone there to share the word of God. Why is he doing that? He is doing it because he realizes that those people who are trapped in that, in that traditional church, they don't know about their eternal destiny. They hope so, but they don't have a know-so. And so Stephen is taking the message that Jesus saves that they must be born again, and he's going to other Jews and sharing it. He has a burden for people. He's ministering to individuals. He's not looking and saying, it's all about me. He's looking and saying, how can I help you? Servant-hearted. But something else that stands out about him, that like Jesus, he is spirit-filled. We read in scriptures about Jesus that being full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from Jordan. We have the concept that Stephen does the same thing. He yields himself. He relies upon the Spirit to fill him, to move him, to to help him to make decisions. We read in chapter 6, verse 3, he was one of those men full of the Holy Ghost. We read in chapter 6, verse 5, Stephen was one of the seven picked, and he is the one designated. In verse 5, when it's listing the seven, look at it. It says he was again a man filled with the Holy Ghost. We read further on. That when he was speaking, the Spirit spake by him. We have this idea, even at the end of his life, when he is being stoned, it says he is being full of the Holy Spirit. That this guy yielded to the Spirit of God. He's not an apostle, but he has the Spirit of God within him. As all who are born again now have the Spirit of God within them. But does the Spirit of God have you? Does he control you? Does he lead you? Does he guide you? And as a result of Stephen saying, I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to be moved by the Spirit. I want to be doing what the Spirit wants. It impacted his speech. It impacted his treatment of others. It impacted what he thought about himself, humility. So when you think about this idea of filling, the filling of the Spirit. And if you weren't with us, we explored it in depth on a couple Sunday nights here just a few weeks ago. Go back, look at it. There's a thorough explanation of what it is. Is just basically yielding to the Spirit. The filling, the word play rest that's used in the text, the foundational word, has the idea of this. Some, some ship being filled with wind and moved along. being Being reliant upon that force you know, if you are filled with something, that's going to impact you. Let's see if we can illustrate it this way. If you are filled with sports, and that's your thing, that you just love it, and you fill your time with sports, what do you probably talk about? Sports. And when you get together, what do you want to do? Sports. Okay, somebody is all about politics. They listen to the news. Over and over and over again. They, they love talk radio. And they want to just get so much. And then when they get into conversation, what does everything gear towards? Okay, if your mind is filled with politics, you'll talk politics. You'll have feelings about your politics. If somebody doesn't agree with your politics, it'll probably move you. Okay, let's do it this way. If you are a workaholic... You are filled with work, 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 work. What, does, what happens with your time? What are you doing? You're working. What are you thinking about when there's a break? What could you be doing right now during a message? Checking your work. Okay, why? Because you're filled with work. It could even be, let's, let's do some attitudes. If your person is filled with anger, how might they drive? Angrily. Okay, how might they wake up in the morning? How, what might they think about food that's prepared? Yeah, so if somebody is filled with lust, that lust can all of a sudden dominate what they do, even when they know it's not right. It can just take over and control what they look at, where they go. You can do the same thing with greed. Are there any people in America that might be described as they're filled with greed? Their whole goal in life is money, possessions, getting. Their motivation is just get, 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 get. What about if somebody's filled with guilt? How might that impact a person? They're probably not a joy-filled person. They're probably, how do they think about themselves? Low. They're probably getting into depression quite frequently. They're probably an individual who just cannot see anything positive. And it takes over. And we choose sometimes where we, what we want to be filled with. There are people who are filled with self. Their biggest concern is my comfort. Their biggest concern is getting ahead of others, is being recognized. And that might even influence how they come into a church service how they might even go to school, how they might treat other people. It's all about themselves. So you have in the scriptures the challenge that says, even like we could throw another one up there that the Bible uses, be not drunk with wine, that it controls. It, it, it dictates how some people act or they all of a sudden lose their governor. And he's saying, don't do that, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And if a person is filled with the spirit, they are an individual who's going to be spirit-minded, spiritual things-minded. And they're going to be an individual who will act that way. And Stephen was one of those individuals. He was a man, like Jesus Christ, that had a spiritual purpose in their life. This was their goal. This was their, their focus, which resulted in both Jesus and Stephen had this similarity. They're both spirit-empowered. We know that that happened in Jesus' life. There are multiple times where it makes it very clear Jesus was moved by the power of the Spirit. He came in the Spirit of God. He yeah, came in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And he ministered that way. He was obvious that the Spirit was using him, giving him the words to say, so that he was able to speak words, and as he spoke words, it impacted people, because it was the power of the Spirit using the words that he had. He even had the power over unclean spirits. Well, you flip that and say, what about Stephen? We already read it. Stephen, full of faith and power, did the wonders in these mighty works. He's one, again I say, he's one of the few outside the apostles in the New Testament that had this ability. And so... Clearly, the Spirit of God is upon His ministry, upon what He's doing. Now, you and I don't have that same spiritual miracle working power in the same way it happened in the New Testament. Tonight, we're going to be discussing it again. We're going to be discussing some of the miraculous gifts. We talked about healings already. We're going to talk about tongues and go through. And it was, it was just, let me say it right here, right now without getting into depth. It was predicted in the Scripture tongues would stop. There was a time in history they were to stop. And it gave us that time period in in Corinthians. And so we don't have those same miracle powers. But do we have the same spirit that can enable us to experience spiritual victories? Spiritual power in our own life? When I was doing the study on the, the filling of the Spirit... I one evening gave 20 different indications in scripture about what the spirit in your life what can happen. Let me just give you a handful of those. Okay, more than a handful, maybe like three handful. Okay? You get with the spirit's empowerment, if you're relying upon him and letting him work, you're going to have a better understanding and recall of scripture. I need all the recall I can get in life in general, much less in scripture. The Spirit's empowerment, you'll get bolder in your witness. Spirit's empowerment, you will become more compassionate to people in your circle and outside your circle. With the Spirit's influence in your life, you will better handle trials and struggles that you face, like they did in the book of Acts. If you are reliant upon the Spirit, you will have better discernment of discerning, is this a good thing, is this a bad thing, is this person misleading me, as we illustrate from the book of Acts. You will have better Uh, ability to resist satanic attack and temptation. You will also better discern where is God's will in my life? How is he leading me? If you are focused on the spirit, being spirit filled and having his empowerment you will have greater peace and comfort in your life. You'll be able to rest your head more frequently at night and say good I'm done. It's a great day. Let me rest. You will have more purity Better period, you'll you'll help, you'll have the assistance to overcome those besetting sins in your life. We say through the Spirit's empowerment that there's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness. All of us need more love, long-suffering. All of us need more gentleness. We look in scriptures and we say, if we are more, if we are empowered by the spirit, we will be individuals who will be more inclined to submit to others in a gracious way. We'll be more others minded than self-minded. We read in scriptures that it'll improve our marriages We'll read in scriptures how you young people, it'll, it'll improve your relationship with your parents. Parents, we read in scriptures that if you are spirit empowered, you will be a better parent. There's all different types of areas, including standing strong in the Lord and resisting the that which would come against you. The spirit empowerment is critical into our lives. Do you have it? You're supposed to. It's supposed to be there. You're supposed to be improving in these areas. But there's another area where Jesus and and Stephen had this similarity, where he was a doppelganger. He was spiritually wise. Wow, Jesus Christ. We can go through the Bible and see where Jesus was wise. But before I do that, let's define what is biblical wisdom. What is wisdom according to the Bible? We know it starts with the fear of the Lord. But what is it? What is it to be wise according to the Bible? It is not this. It is not how much you know. It is not just getting good grades. It is not having lots of degrees. It's not being able to go on Jeopardy and win money. That's not wisdom in and of itself. Because people can be smart, but at the same time be pretty dumb. Book smart, life dumb. You probably know a few. Don't turn sideways and look. Okay, you don't want to do that. That would be life dumb, okay, right now. But we've run into people who make some of the unexplainable decisions. Why would you do that? Why would you do this? Wisdom, and I'm I'm not smart enough or wise enough to be able to do this, so I'm gleaning from other authors and other writers. What did they say? It's not what you know, but it's what you live. One man put it this way, it's how quickly you turn to God. One man put it this way, it's the right application of truth and spiritual knowledge. It's not just learning the word, it's living it. As one author put it, it says it's spiritual common sense. While America is lacking in some of that, are you? You don't have to be. You can be like a Stephen who is like Jesus Christ. We know that even Jesus as a young lad he increased in wisdom. As a young lad he just Thunderstruck, the lead, the teachers who were asking him different questions. Even when Jesus was in his last days, and they are purpose, they, they gang up against him. All the political and religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus. They've determined to kill him, and so one of the ways they have to do that is trick him into say something or to do something that they can accuse him politically—that he's against Rome, he's against Judaism, he's against the temple. And so they keep on coming and debating with him, or throwing those questions out at him. And when Jesus responds, watch in just one chapter, or one one setting, I should say, in his in his the Monday, Tuesday when he's uh, the Monday and Tuesday before he's going to be crucified. He's in the temple and the debates, and it says, when they heard him, they marvelled and left. He was so wise in his response. His critics they had nothing more to say. Watch this. The multitude was astonished at his doctrine. He was so wise. No man was able to answer him a word. Neither did any man ask him any more questions. You know, he's, he's, He just he thunderstruck the people with his wisdom. Well you have the same thing showing the same word that talks about Stephen. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You have the same thing that the people were able to see Because remember when we already looked at, you choose out among you seven men of honest report full of wisdom, beginning of chapter 6. The choose out among you means you examine, you look carefully does this person, and so wisdom is something that is going to be evident in how a person acts, how they respond, how they live, the choices they make. And Stephen was, wow, he's a wise man. So much so that he goes and debates with the Hellenistic Jews. What I mean by that is this. Jewish we talked about last week. In Jerusalem they had the temple and that was the center of worship. Don't be mistaken they also had a lot of synagogues scattered throughout Jerusalem and nearby. Some say 350, some say all the way to 480 of them. And what they were is they were the, the settings where little groups got together who had commonality. What it would be is the Jews might get together. Obviously, they would get together with people who had that, that similar status in society. It, surely, the Hellenists got together with the Hellenists and the Hebrews got together with the Hebrews. And all I mean by that is this. We mentioned it last week. Hellenistic Jews were those who were not native-born to Jerusalem, Judea. They or their, their parents were immigrants in from foreign lands. They weren't accepted as part of the long-term Jews. The, Hellen, uh, the Hebrew Jews were those whose ancestors have been there for a number of generations already. And they didn't leave the land, but they stayed there. And, they, and when they were deported under the Babylonians, they came back. Where the Hellenistic Jews, their family stayed and lived outside of Israel for a lengthy period of time and then finally moved back. And so these people had a division between them, these two Jewish groups. That was what happened in the beginning of chapter 6. It spread into the church. And so the Jews could have different synagogues, Greek, Grecian, or Hellenistic Jews that read the Septuagint. The Hebrews would read the Aramaic Bible. They would speak Greek. These would speak Aramaic mixed with the Hebrew. They might even divide down further. They might say well it's going to be those of us who are um, we sell cloth. We're going to form our own little synagogue. Those of us who we, we work in importing business. We work in metallurgy. They, they would break down these synagogues in a very special way. What happens is in this text you have Stephen, whose name is Greek background, so he's probably a Hellenistic Jew, he goes to one or four or five different synagogues that were Hellenistic. Look at what it says in the the verse. It says, There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. Your Bible might read different. It might be the freedmen. These were people who were formerly slaves or they had been born to slaves, but they're free people. And they might be in with a group of, from Syria, or Alexandria, or Cilicia, or other parts of Asia. That might be four different synagogues. Or it could be one that had that blend. We don't know from the text. And so he goes back there, and think about this. Stephen probably knew these people. He's Hellenistic in his own background, more than likely. And so could he be going back to the synagogue, or synagogues where he worshipped? And he's going to go back and talk to those people? And could it be possible that one of those people in the synagogues, he knew? There was a man in Jerusalem who was a Jew, but he was from Tarsus. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. And so Paul could have been part of one of these synagogues or the synagogue where Stephen goes and he starts talking about Jesus. And Saul, made, this may be his very first exposure to the gospel, was hearing Stephen. And so he's there, and by the way, at the killing, at the stoning, they laid their garments at the feet of Saul. He led some of these Jews in the stoning of, of uh, Stephen. So the point being, Stephen goes back and he debates with these people. And so he's having this discussion with them and he's talking about it and in his debates the passage says they couldn't resist him nor the spirit by which he spoke just the same as Jesus. That as he spoke and debated he outdid them. Why is that? Well look at his message of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is his when he's before the Sanhedrin it's, it's how he defends himself. It is filled, 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 filled. It's scripture. It's a Bible story. He runs through their entire history. And so where does he get this wisdom that they can't answer? He's using the Word of God. He is full of Scripture. He is an individual that got his wisdom from getting into God's Word. That, my friend, is what the Word of God tells you. The Word of God tells you over and over and over again that wisdom is found or gleaned. It is procured by getting into His Word. When you are filling yourself with Scripture, you are getting filled with spiritual wisdom. If you aren't being filled with Scripture, that's when you do the foolish things. That's when you make the dumb decisions that aren't so spiritually wise. The Scriptures makes us wise on how to learn not only to get saved, but to live for Christ. And so, Stephen has filled himself with the Bible. And as a result, his spiritual wisdom, they can't resist it. But not only that, he has steadfast faith. Here's an individual who's spirit-filled, spirit-empowered. He is spiritually wise. He has steadfast faith. What I mean by that, strong faith, determined faith. Jesus had this. When Jesus was knowledgeable of that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, look what it says, as time approached for him to be taken to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He was determined to go, even when his friend says, do not go to Jerusalem, we won't let you go to Jerusalem, where you just said you're going to die. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get the... We read in Isaiah, one of the prophecies about Jesus, for the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint. What's that mean? I have set my face like a flint. This is out of the text talking about he's going to go and give his life as the suffering servant. The flint was one of the hardest stones or rocks that was around at that time. You find it referred to the idea of like a flint, being like a flint, showing up in other passages. It means you are determined, you are undeterred, you are steadfast, you are strong in your purposes. Jesus was like that. What about Stephen? Stephen is so steadfast in his faith where he says, I'm going to share the word of God. I've got to share the word of God. I, we've just heard, they've told us it's illegal to speak in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin just declared that back in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They even took the apostles out and flogged them with 30, you know, 40 stripes minus 1. So Stephen knows this is really a dangerous thing to do, but I'm going to do it. Why? Steadfast faith. Steadfast faith. So he does this, he goes and he goes to a synagogue and he's sharing the word of God with them in the synagogue. He's sharing Christ and they're debating with him. That means he's doing this over and over again, that he is sharing this knowledge that he has of Jesus Christ. They get so mad at him that what they do is they, they're going to suborn men to lie about him. They hire liars to say he is saying things that just aren't true. And so they want to accuse him. And so then they have him arrested. If you look at the story, it's very clear how it unfolds. It says, we have heard him speak the blasphemous words. They stirred up the people, verse 12, and the elders and scribes came upon him and caught him. The wording in the original is they grabbed him by force, hauled him out of there, and took him before the Sanhedrin to the high court. And so he's being physically manhandled, and he gets before the Sanhedrin, and what does he do? He's on trial now for speaking about Jesus Christ. He knows that they could have have him killed. They did that to Jesus. They accuse him of being anti-temple against this holy place. Look at the words. He speaks against this holy place. They accuse him of not following the law which Moses gave. So he's anti-Moses, anti-law. They accuse him of wanting to change Judaism and all the customs. He never did. Jesus never did. Jesus wasn't against the temple. Jesus wasn't against Judaism. Neither was Stephen. But they're lying about him. And yet what does he do? Well you read chapter 7 and he goes on. Men and brethren hearken the God of glory. And the whole passage is his sharing about Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't back down he is steadfast in his faith. Jesus, when he was sentenced to death, we read, he, when he was reviled, he did not return anger. In suffering, he did not threaten. You hang me on this cross, I'm going to have you caught in a whirlwind. He never did that. He never used nature as a rebuke against individuals. But instead, Peter says, he continued to entrusting himself to God even in the midst of this horrible physical attack that he was having. In the same way, Stephen's facing a lynch mob. A lynch mob who has already determined we've got to get rid of him. And they're going through an illegal process. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't say, you... He says, men, brethren, fathers... He speaks like the Lord spoke when he's attacked. He has enough faith that he's not going to be deterred. He's not going to give up. He's not going to give in to his own anger and retaliation and vengeance. There's a man from history, one of the first men in church history, who recognized the 27 books of the Bible. One of the first men who declared the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's 100% God, 100% man. He had an opposition fellow in the early church. His name was uh, Arrhenius. He taught that Jesus wasn't fully God. He became God. It is what the Jehovah Witness teach today. But Athanasius said, no, no, the Bible teaches Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. But the emperor liked this bishop and so the emperor was saying, we're going to go this way. Athanasius spoke up and said, the emperor is foolish. Well, that got him one of his jail sentences, one of his five. And then he continued. And one of those times he's in jail, being threatened with death, his followers come to him and say, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Do you remember his response, some of you who read history? He says, then Athanasius is against the whole world. He would not back down. Bring it to modern day. James Dobson is doing a program. He's interviewing a teenager who, this teenager, started Bible studies at his high school, at a public school, and was trying to influence his other classmates that they need to be born again. And so, in this interview, James Dobson said, Well, I assume that you, are, you have other students mad at you for doing this? And he said, yes. And he says, so how is it you keep on talking about Jesus, doing these Bible studies, when the peer pressure is all against you? There was a pause in the interview, if you listen to it. And the young man, I think he was 15 or 16, he responds almost like, Dr. Dobson, you don't understand I am the peer pressure. Friend, he had steadfast faith as a teenager. Do you? Do you have that type of faith? So then what happens is something, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interjection thought here. If you look at verse 15, before it gets into the nitty gritty of his, his uh, comments that we'll pick up next week. And everyone that sat in the council Looking steadfastly. He says it in such a way that he is saying everyone. This this wasn't just one person's thought. Everybody, looking carefully, saw something happen. What did they clearly see? All of a sudden, his face changed. So they said he looked like an angel. Where did Luke figure this out or find this out? Maybe Paul told him afterwards. Because remember, Paul's a part of this. Saul at the time. What's it mean his face was like an angel's face? I mean, you look at your babies when they're sleeping and you go, oh, they're just like an angel. What's it mean? Some of you do anyway. Some of you look like they're not the angel, but what do you think it might mean? His face became like an angel's face. I I, I guess it's got, I don't know. I guess it's that idea that there's a glow. Because we read in the book of Revelation, did, do angels glow? Those of you who are sitting in the book of Revelation, your answer is, yes. yes, thank you. Okay, so he's got a glowing face. You know what's really interesting, why, he's, uh, why I think I stuck that in here? Is who else in the Bible had a glowing face? Moses' face, after he met God, glowed so much, what did he have to do? Yeah, he had to cover it up because the people were like, ooh, too bright. Until the, until the God effect wore off. What have they just accused Stephen of? You're anti-Moses. And who does he start all of a sudden? What's that say to all these people? What should I have said to them? Who's God with? God's with Stephen, right? There's a visible indication that what Stephen is doing is the right thing. And you guys who are judging him, you 70 who are going to put him on trial and accuse him, It should have said to them, nah, nah, nah. Be careful. And so instead it doesn't happen. But what happens in, and let me just wind through this. He's sweet-spirited. We already mentioned this. Now, Jesus was so sweet-spirited, though he was firm with truth, that even children were, were attracted to Jesus. Think this through. He's called a man of sorrows. He does condemn. But Was Jesus always the miserable individual? I don't think so. Because people were still attracted to him. I think he's one of those individuals that he was, what we would call a likable person. In fact, when they even say they didn't like what he said, but they made this comment that they bear witness and they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. He spoke truth, but he spoke it with grace. And so what do you have? You have the idea that Jesus on the cross, even when he's there and he's got all the power, what does he share? How does he act? How does he pray for the people who have physically attacked him? Father, forgive them. There's a sweet spirit in this. In the same way, Stephen is going to do this. There's a wording you may want to check. Some of you, if you have the NIV, it's it's translated different. But most of us who are sitting with the King James Version, we read where it says in verse 8, and Stephen full of faith and power. The word, the original word that is translated there for faith is the word keratos. That almost everywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated grace. It is the idea of kindness, graciousness. It's the kind of the, it's like uh, we said in one of his books, it's the idea of being winsome. Being somebody that would, others would want to be near. Not a cantankerous Christian, but rather a one who was contagious. That had a joy and a spirit that way. Can, can I ask you some silly questions? Is it okay for us to laugh and smile? It, Is it okay for us to participate in fun things? Is it okay for us to, is it worldly to go out and do stuff? To enjoy, to use your money to do vacation? Now you're all going to say, no, it's not ungodly. Okay. But does that sometimes get presented that we Christians have to constantly, constantly be in a spirit of meditative prayer? And look down at everything in this world. What, is, what about Christ? I, now, this is me. Je- and maybe I'm all wrong. Jesus got inviting, invited to weddings. I don't think he was a miserable person. You don't invite miserable people to weddings. You know, so, you know, are we to be kind? Con- we're supposed to point out where things are wrong. Do we have to always be negative? Do we have to always find fault? Do you as a parent always have to be on your kid so that they become all that God wants them to be? Could you at times enjoy things with your kid? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask this question. Is it wrong for Christians to prank people? (laughs) We are going back a few years church at that time, none of you were here except for Chuck. You were the only one who would be able to show up with us, right? We had a table set up there and a ladder right about where your your walker is. And that was how I spoke to you over the internet. There was nobody here and I had to preach to nobody. That was an experience. Okay, when I told jokes, none of you laughed. Well, still happens today. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so we gotta come up with something funny at the yeah. end of the service. Yeah. So I was thinking, what if I, what if I hide in the pulpit, and then you bring your dad in, get him here, and then we'll we'll scare him. Like I'll, I'll jump out while I'll grab him from underneath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You'll jump out, nice. Yeah, we can talk to him about the cameras. Um, yeah, transition between. Yeah, because we yeah. said we wanted to make sure that was a little more smooth. Yeah, yeah. sure, Clement. Let's see I'm what we can, can just. To, will jump out, right? Hey, why don't we switch this around? Why don't you get in here? You need help getting out? <laughs> good? Right, yeah, why don't you get in there, and I'll, okay. I'll go get your dad. And Would you run. try to, you went in back first? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you And we were going to ask John to do this. <laughs> All right, I'll go get your dad. I got to back up, though, right? So we can't. Are you going to walk him really close? I'll walk him. I'll walk him right. Yeah, I'll walk him really close next to the hallway. Okay, let me see how far back I can go. Is that good? Yeah, that'll work. Okay, don't take a long time. All right, I won't. I'll go get him. Good. So what I need you to do is, uh, I know. We want to make a transition. We're trying to figure out the transitions between the cameras. So if you can stand here at the pulpit, watching there. And then what I want you to do, the center camera. This one? Yeah. Okay. And then you're going to sort of trans... (laughs) Hey, thanks for joining us today. We hope that the study has been blessed. I ask you again: <laughs> Is it okay to prank somebody? Yes. What happened to all my notes? Okay. Yeah, here we go. Let me back up. Let me get, now that we're all focused. Okay. Sweet-spirited, he says. Yod. Now I'm really confused. One of my slides got taken out here. I'm sorry. So what happens is he's like Christ. He's very sweet spirited and he even says lay not this to their charge. I want to ask you these questions now that you can calm down from giggling at me. Okay. Are you described, can you be described as sweet spirited? Do you speak graciously to those who disagree with you in politics? let's put. Do you speak graciously when you're under pressure? Do you forgive others who offend you, hurt you, say things about you? Are you an individual that you are sweet-spirited enough you will pray for those who are on a totally different frame of mind than you are, doctrinally or politically? Are you sweet-spirited enough that people want to be in your company beyond your family that has no choice? (laughs) I think these are profound questions to ask that they are worthy of us who are believers that say, wait a minute, are we really like Jesus Christ? In practical areas, in our walk with the Lord, in our involvement with scriptures, as well as how we talk and treat other people. Let me close with this. Don't, don't shut up shop, please, to distract somebody. There's something else that stands out from the text. Both Jesus and Stephen were absolutely sure of their eternal destiny. Do you remember how Jesus portrayed it? Jesus on the cross, what does he say? Father into the hands, I... Okay, absolutely confident he's returning to the Father. What does Stephen do? Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He even sees heaven open. We'll talk about that next week. So in this sense, they were both confident. Now, Jesus was the Savior. Stephen was confident because he he put his faith in Christ. Are you confident... That you are on your way to heaven. Now, I remind you, none of us gets to heaven by our own good works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works. You aren't going to get to heaven by baptism, which is a good thing to do, but it won't get you to heaven. It doesn't wash away sins. You won't get to heaven because you come to church. It's a good thing to do, but it won't get you to heaven. I'm not going to get into heaven because I'm a preacher. It's a neat thing to do, wonderful job, absolutely fabulous congregation. But that's not, I'm not so sure about the assistants who crawl out the pews, but (laughs) wonderful, wonderful, but that's not going to get me into heaven. Are you sure you're on your way to heaven, and the only way is through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, I grew up in a church that says you can never know so. It's just you have to wait and see. But the Word of God says, I have written these things so that you may know. If you're here this morning and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven, let me just say two things. One, it's through Jesus Christ. Two, if you want to know, we want to give you that chance right now. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And there's no one looking around. But we're going to have our staff, who aren't going to prank you, (laughs) we're going to have our staff go to the side door. And they're going to stand there for just a couple minutes and they're going to wait if any man or woman is interested, or a teenager is interested in knowing for sure that they're on their way to heaven, I'm going to invite you right now, while others are heads or by are close, to get up from your seat and to even look up right now if that's if, if you're not sure you're on your way to heaven. Just get up from your seat, go and talk to one of those people standing right there. They'll take you down the hall to a private room. They will show you from the Bible what you need to do to make sure you're going to heaven. But you have to make a decision. You have to accept Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, this is your moment. So you too can be sure of heaven. I'll close this service right now, but when I close in prayer, that doesn't mean we close an opportunity. Come and see me. We'll share the Word of God with you. We'll show you from the Bible what you need to do to be sure you're going to heaven.